It's Tuesday, June 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As protests continue throughout the country, many hope that this could be a moment for police reforms. But experts say that it will be a difficult path and the politics of police reform have squashed efforts before because of powerful police unions and legal immunity. But public perception of police bias has started to shift, and many recognize a deeper problem. Kimberly Kendi, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, the country continues to make its way back from the shutdowns of the coronavirus pandemic. New York City, the hardest hit area in the U.S., began reopening Monday with construction, agriculture, and manufacturing sites opening, including retail stores offering curbside and in-store pickup. Stephanie Yang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the first day of reopening in New York City. Finally, when the protests first started and quickly turned violent, the big question was who was hijacking the demonstration? Many blamed far-right and far-left extremist groups. One such group called the Boogaloo Boys, who wear Hawaiian shirts and carry guns, just had some members arrested in Las Vegas for trying to incite violence. Craig Timberg, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on the Boogaloo Boys. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Let's say that you actually have an officer who gets charged with some sort of crime when they use excessive force and somebody dies. What jurors are told is that they need to consider whether or not the officer feared for their life in the moment in which they use the fatal force. Joining us now is Kimberly Kendi, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kimberly. It's so good to be here. Wanted to talk a little bit more about what we're seeing going on in the country right now. We're still seeing thousands and thousands of people turning out to protests in support of George Floyd and against police brutality. We've already seen some action on that front, the successes of those protests. There's been some cities that have said already that they're going to start doing things like banning chokeholds. Democrats planned to roll out a package of police reforms. And we're hearing these other calls to defund police and some places such as L.A. and even Minneapolis, to start making some steps towards doing some of that. But if we look back at history about how things have happened before with police reforms, it is going to be a very difficult road ahead. Kimberly, tell us a little bit about that. That's exactly right. In 2014, when Eric Garner died after he was held in a chokehold in New York, saying among his last words, um, I can't breathe, very much like Mr. Floyd said recently, moments before he died. There were 50 protests around the nation. There was certainly an uprising and there was a lot of talk about reform. After Michael Brown, an 18-year-old, was shot and killed by an officer in Ferguson, Missouri, some months later, there was legislation that was introduced in the nation's capital, many pieces of legislation, and it all stalled. And What we did see was some police departments doing some reform, changing the way in which they trained officers. But it was very piecemeal because there's 18,000 police departments. So you didn't see systemic change. And one of the reasons that makes it really difficult is that police unions have contracts that are, you know, provide a lot of immunity and cover for police officers when they use force. And there is also case law that makes it really difficult to prosecute officers If they go before a jury, let's say that you actually have an officer who gets charged with some sort of crime when they use excessive force and somebody dies. 
what jurors are told is that they need to consider whether or not the officer feared for their life in the moment in which they use the fatal force. And most jurors are inclined to believe an officer when they say that they feared for their life. And so the odds of getting an officer prosecuted for something like this is low. And the odds of getting a national legislative reform passed is very low. It definitely does seem that way. And it's an interesting feeling this time around. It feels different. Sure. You see it in the protests and just the diversity that really is out there. You kind of hear it all the time, but you're really seeing it so much more this time. And specifically with the George Floyd case, I mean, there's so much video sure. of the interaction happening. It's hard to dispel right. some of that. But then you bring in other stories like Breonna Taylor, and there haven't been any mm-hmm. charges in that case. I think they reopened that case to see what they can do there. But this is a tough, tough road ahead. And But let's talk a little bit about those changing perspectives, because some polls have said that they're starting to see it now, or at least starting to believe it more now that there is this type of systemic racism. Absolutely. There's a huge change in that respect. And I think that gives a lot of civil rights leaders hope. A lot of members of Congress have been trying to pass comprehensive national reforms hope. I covered Ferguson. I covered the protests when 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed there. And during that era, You'd maybe have 100 protests across the nation. We're approaching 500 protests across the nation now. And just the very complexion, you know, the very way in which the crowds look completely different. Certainly there were people of all races and cultures that were supportive of the movement five years ago. But what we're seeing right now is much, much greater diversity in terms of people who are out there and are motivated to demand reforms and to demand change. And with the civil rights leaders I've talked to and with the members of Congress who are pushing for federal reforms, they say that they believe this is a watershed moment because we have moved from it being an issue where it was something that the black community was pushing for with some support to it being an American issue where you're seeing people from all sectors of life who are saying this must change. And the difficult part, the hurdles that we're going to have to navigate, as you mentioned earlier, is that there's so many police departments around the country and everyone operates a little differently. Democrats in the House just unveiled their Justice in Policing Act of 2020. They want to broaden police accountability. They want to track problematic officers through some type of national misconduct registry. These are a lot of things that people have been talking about for a long time, but it's so hard to get done on the broad scale of things. And another thing that came up in your reporting too, there's been so much done in the area of training, bias training, or even de-escalation training. Mm -hmm. But then when cops get into the field and they start working with more seasoned officers, some of that goes by the wayside. So there is a ton of work to be done. It's a huge problem. There's two things that when you actually have a police department that decides that they're going to do some serious reform of their police training. And there's dozens of police departments around the nation that have taken this seriously and and really in the last several years changed how they train their officers. But you do run up against just two very basic things. There's many things, but two very basic things. One, when a cadet leaves the academy training, they're assigned a field training officer. And it makes a lot of sense. You have a veteran officer who's been out there. They know the community. They know what police work really looks like. But as it was told to me by some police training experts who were former police officers and said, then they tell them, they're like, hey, kid, 
This is how the real world operates. So you have an undermining that reform training that happens, and that's a problem. The other problem is, and this is like probably going to be astonishing to many of your listeners, but the average tenure for a police chief is two to three years in this country. It is such a difficult job. They don't last very long. So if you have a police chief that is able to find a way to work with their union and their officers to achieve reform and change training, by the time they actually get it underway and they start to see some change in their department, they're gone. And the next guy, as in all kinds of businesses that we're talking about, it's not just police departments, but when a new leader, a new CEO, and in this case, a police chief comes in, they want to set their own agenda. They don't want to do what the old guy did. So then those reforms can get undermined and fall by the wayside. So these are some of the problems, like a big problem is just like it doesn't happen across the board. But even in the places where they do it, these things tend to undermine the reforms that happen. Kimberly Kendi, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is the first day of the reopening, and it was achieved by New Yorkers' hard work. This is clearly the hardest place in America to get to this moment. Joining us now is Stephanie Yang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Great. Thanks for having me. We're talking about the country reopening after the coronavirus pandemic and the nation's largest city, New York, who was the one that got hit the hardest by this whole thing. They were the epicenter for the United States. They started reopening on Monday. This is after months of being closed down. And people there had this range of emotions. There was uh, people that were a little nervous. It might have been too early. There's people that are ready to get back to work. And then others that are just kind of relieved that things are starting to open back up so they can get back to normal, start making money and live those normal lives again. Stephanie, tell us how it was going. What is reopening in New York City? So the first phase of reopening focuses on some construction, retail stores, and things like that. So I was walking around Brooklyn today, you know, trying to chat with some small business owners and how they're affected by this. And so a lot of what I saw is that some of these businesses have been operating on a very limited capacity, just trying to keep things afloat. So this new reopening means that some stores can open more for pickup orders or allow one or two people inside the store. And so it really seems like they're taking those baby steps back to normalcy. But it does seem like a very gradual process. In walking around and kind of eyeballing everything, how many of the storefronts would you say are reopening? Are we like at a 50%? Because I'm assuming not everybody is coming out in full force right away either. 50% sounds about right, maybe even less. Some of the stores that I saw have been boarded up because of the recent protests and some are still closed down or even, you know, they have signs up in the windows saying pick up orders only, but there was no one actually running the counter. So just some numbers that you had in your article about 16,000 non-essential retail businesses, 3,700 manufacturing companies are going to be reopening and 32,000 construction sites are allowed to restart Monday. I know there was a bunch of construction sites that were open throughout this whole thing, but now they're going to be able to add in more people to start working. So how did that go? So walking around, I did see some construction workers who said that they were considered essential and they had been at it for a while. But one thing that this means is they'll have more people working on the project and able to join them. One of the interesting things about New York and possibly a contributor to why 
coronavirus spread so quickly there is the population density. It's a very dense city. Everybody's packed in really close to each other. And public transportation is such a huge part of that. The MTA there said that subways and buses are going to start increasing their schedules, offering more rides. But they expect some pretty big numbers in the coming days and weeks of ridership to be increasing there as well. One of the things that we saw from some of the people taking public transportation is they are still a little bit nervous about the density and how many people are going to start riding the subway and riding the trains again. So I think that that's one thing that's a little bit up in the air as well. Potentially that could keep some people away if they still have those concerns. As of now, from what I saw, it doesn't seem too crowded yet, but obviously that's up to change as we go through with the reopening process. I did want to ask, though, so some things are starting to open, obviously not everything yet. I guess indoor dining, some gyms, some of those things aren't allowed yet. But restaurants are doing more takeout and delivery stuff still. What's the timeline on when people are going to be able to get into the restaurant? So I think that that's going to be determined based on whether New York City is meeting some of these metrics for reopening, such as infection and hospitalization rates. I think a lot of business owners are looking towards the phase two as one of the big steps that we would see with restaurants reopening, nail salons, barbershops, and things like that. And so even for those who are already open or have been open throughout the shutdown, that's going to be another signal for them and that business owners have said, hopefully as more things reopen, we'll start to see more of that foot traffic and more customers just by virtue of everything opening back up again. Everything is a little different and it's going to be different for some time. Are people optimistic about that out there? I think a lot of businesses are trying to adapt to that new normal in, you know, having face masks handy if a customer walks in and doesn't have one, setting up more scheduled appointments for people who want to shop, accommodating pickup orders to keep people as socially distanced as possible. And from the people that I spoke to, no one really has a good idea of when things would go back to what it was like before the pandemic. And they're all really focused on being able to accommodate those guidelines from the CDC on sanitizing, wearing masks, and things like that. Stephanie Yang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Great, thank you. And we've looked in particular at some far-right groups that are showing up in some cases with large guns, um, and they're in their social media posts, they talk very openly about wanting to instigate a new civil war. Joining us now is Craig Timberg, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Craig. It's my pleasure. The protests around the country continue. The protests against police brutality and the death of George Floyd, they're still ongoing, and they have largely turned completely peaceful now. The message is starting to get across. But in the first early days of these protests, some of them were marred by extreme violence and looting, all that. We've talked about it already, but wanted to talk about some of the groups that participate in this, because one of the first questions that always happens is, who are these people that are causing all the problems? And on one side, people are saying there's far-right extremists and white supremacists that are causing problems. On the other side, you're hearing that there's left-wing extremists, such as Antifa, that are causing violence. Just one example of what happened, though, last week, there was three men with ties to the U.S. military and the anti-government Boogaloo movement that were organizing in Las Vegas during protests against COVID-19 shutdown orders at first, and then they turned to these police brutality protests as an excuse. They wanted to incite violence. This is all according to a criminal complaint. These three men were arrested after they planned to attend a protest last week on the Las Vegas Strip, and they were going to come armed with Molotov cocktails, and they were going to try to target police. 
So thankfully, in that case, the negative element was rooted out before those protests took place. But this is just some examples of the type of people that hijack protests. So, Craig, let's start right there and talk about who might be some of these far left or far right groups. It's obviously impossible for us to know exactly who's doing what. I mean, even the police are struggling to figure that out. What we've noticed, though, is we've sort of been following the trail that people are leaving on social media in which, you know, in some cases they're posting images of themselves at these events. And we've looked in particular at some far right groups that are showing up in some cases with large guns um, and they're in their social media posts. They talk very openly about wanting to instigate a new civil war. One of these groups called the Boogaloo Boys, who actually wear Hawaiian shirts. So I, I feel bad for anybody who's not part of these groups and just happened to be wearing a Hawaiian shirt when they were protesting <laughs> that day. But, um, but this is one of these identifiable groups that we have been seeing out there. This is a group that began that brewed up kind of late last year on social media, and it's taken a lot of forms. It keeps changing. But one of their core tenets is that we're headed to a new civil war and people need to arm themselves and prepare for it. And, you know, there's something a little bit silly about them sometimes. They make very kind of exaggerated claims and they wear the Hawaiian shirts. You know, the term Boogaloo comes from an old movie that was that was perceived to be so much like it's it was a remake and it's perceived to be so much like the original that it became a kind of a pop cultural term for, for repeating anything. And so Boogaloo means repeating the Civil War. But the name kept kind of evolving. Then people started using the term Big Igloo because the social media companies were cracking down on Boogaloo. And then somebody started using Big Luau. And so <laughs> to signify this idea of a Big Luau, they started wearing Hawaiian shirts. So now, so now there's images from guys at protests all over the country wearing Hawaiian church and carrying assault rifles. And so like it sort of gets your attention yeah. and it's also a little frightening, right? These are guys at protests who are, have heavy weapons on them and that I think in the story sort of called the sort of like volatile element that we did. No one is quite sure what to make of. Yeah. yeah. That movie you were talking about was breaking to electric boogaloo as a break dancing <laughs> right. movie. It's funny because I grew up watching the, the original movie, which I loved. And the second one was, eh, you know, whatever. <laughs> But it's funny that they kind of take their cues from that. And I want to make it clear that, you know, we're talking about these groups. These are not the protesters that are fighting police brutality and the killing of George Floyd. These are some these are some of the bad actors that have been kind of moving throughout these groups and, and causing some more of the mayhem. The last question I have is what part do social media companies play in this? Because I know that they're trying to deactivate some of these accounts and all that. But how effective that have they been with that? It's always hard to know, like, what would happen if they did nothing, right? Um, what we do know is that these groups are really flourishing on social media. And like a lot of groups, they've learned to walk a kind of a fine line. They, they speak with irony. They speak in memes. And in, in many cases, avoid to, like, you know, trying to trip the wires of, of the terms of service, which and for all the companies really um, prohibit the inciting and, glor and glorifying of violence. But in general, you know, American social media companies try to give a pretty wide latitude for free speech. And so this is always a difficult line they end up walking. And whether you think that they're being kind of too permissive or not careful enough in, in curbing speech that might lead to dangerous behaviors is really one of the eternal questions of our time. And everyone seems to have a different opinion about it. Craig Timberg, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vixen Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.